Welcome back to another episode of Diagnosing a Killer. I'm Kenna. And I'm Koel. Welcome back, everybody. Hey. How's it going? Pretty good. good. Yeah. A little foggy brain today, but I just had my coffee, so I think I'll, I'll be okay. The night coffee. The night coffee. <laughs> Classic <laughs> night coffee. That's nice. Everything has been... I th- actually, I had a pretty decent day. Yeah. Um, I think that I was finally able to get out and get some sunlight, and that helped a lot. I so, did the yeah. opposite of that today, and that's what I'll be doing tomorrow. There you go. It is on my <laughs> schedule to get some sunlight tomorrow. <laughs> Perfect. Do you have anything before we get started? I do. Ooh. I have an apology to make. Okay. I do. We actually got a message from a listener. It is Tyler. Tyler. He said, great episode and kudos to y'all for putting in the work the day that you lost a pet as well. It couldn't have been easy on y'all, expected or not. Not to be the, well, actually kind of (laughs) dude, but I did want to point out for the sake of political correctness or whatever you want to call it, that when you were talking about the Ukrainian child, that is an example of RAD. I'm blanking on their name right now. But you kept saying the Ukraine, which is typically considered pro-Russian terminology because Hmm. it infers that that it's a territory rather than its own country. I didn't know if y'all typically had any listeners in the Ukraine or anything, but I did want to make you aware of that. So that is my bad. My apologies. Absolutely. Now, that is something that I learned today. So it's just referred to as Ukraine. Ukraine. Okay. Well, I didn't know that either. Yeah. Thank you, Tyler, for clarifying that for yeah. us. So Natalie Grace, Natalia Grace, rather, is Ukrainian. Yeah. Okay. I guess it makes sense because you wouldn't say... You wouldn't say the Russia. The Australia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that does yeah. make sense. But yeah, I guess something we didn't think about. Yeah. So there you go. Thanks, Tyler. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for being such a loyal listener and friend. Yes. Do you want to give everybody our handles before we get started, if this is their first time listening? Sure. You can check us out on any social media platform at Diagnosing a Killer, other than X, formerly known as Twitter, which is at Killer Diagnosis. We also have a Patreon, and every month you will get an added bonus episode for our Tier 2 and 3 Patreon members. Those come out towards the end of the month. This month you are getting two bonus episodes, because we love you so much. Yes. We also have a PayPal, a Venmo, and a Cash App that is at Diagnosing a Killer if you would like to make a monetary donation. All right. I think that's everything. Or maybe we should mention the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival. That's right. You can come see us in Denver at the True Crime Paranormal Podcast Festival from the 12th of July to the 14th of July. It is Kenna's birthday weekend, so we are going to turn it up. Hell yeah. Yeah. All right. I think we should just go ahead and get right on into this episode. This is someone that I actually didn't know about before I started researching. Mm -hmm. His name was in my notes because I think I had maybe seen like a short video of like him or just heard about him. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Okay, so we're going to be talking today about Ronald Dominic, a.k.a. the Bayou Strangler. I have never heard of this case. The Bayou Strangler. You'd think that you would remember if you had heard that before, right? Going on a bayou! (laughs) Content warning. This episode contains depictions of sexual assault of minors, drug addiction, and negative talk about the sex work community. If this episode is not for you, we encourage you to find another one of our episodes. Remember, your mental health is very important to us, and we love you. 
Love you. Bye. So yes, the Bayou Strangler. Here we go. Ronald Joseph Dominic was born on January 9th, 1964 in Thibodeau, Louisiana. He's a Capricorn. <laughs> Always. Always. <laughs> <laughs> he was the youngest of six children born to poor laborers, and the family lived in a trailer park located on the outskirts of the city. I could not find the name of his parents, no matter how hard I looked. Mm. I don't know if that was intentional or not, <laughs> but they oh don't gosh. have their names out there. Dan Wozniak's parents were really hard to find their name. I yeah. think I found one article where they had their name. They were just yeah. like, nah, not my kid. Pass. <laughs> hard pass. Yikes. Hard pass. Due to the family being not well off financially, Ronald lived out his young childhood with very little. There's, again, not really much known about his grade school years. His early childhood is very hard to, like, decipher. Like, mm-hmm. it's just, like, really not there. What but year was this again? 19? 64. 64. Okay, so it wasn't even that long ago. It wasn't, but, but I don't like... know. I think it's just, like, scrapped because they're like, we don't want this information <laughs> <Scrapped. out there." laughs> Ronald would go on to attend Thibodeau High School around the year 1979. While in high school, Ronald was known to be melancholy most of the time, with minimal communication skills and low self-esteem. This might just be because of the lack of education due to the family not being well off, Mm -hmm. Um, but there's clearly, like, some social challenges that he was facing. He was actually, like, physically larger than most of his classmates in his school, and he would also struggle with health problems due to his weight. So he would be picked on for that as well. So he was, he wasn't just like, he was a heavy guy. Yeah, he did struggle with his weight. And I think mm-hmm. that might have caused like, I don't know, some sort of like breathing well, problems or whatever. Yeah. Ronald would join the school choir and the glee club, oh. even though he was considered melancholy and was generally considered unpopular and a social outcast by his peers. Mm-hmm. He was not involved in sports, and he didn't really partake in the extracurricular activities like drinking and smoking like his other classmates. So he just was very much a loner. He was just, yeah, just kind of an outcast, you know. But despite all of this, Ronald would graduate high school in 1983 and enroll in Nichols State University, where he studied computer science. Hmm. While there, Ronald experienced somewhat similar things to high school in terms of peers, And it was around this time that he would begin to lean towards his true identity. Ronald would fully discover that he was gay, and he would begin frequenting a local gay bar. Unfortunately, some of Ronald's classmates would spot him entering and leaving the gay bar, and actually at the gay bar, and they would begin harassing him about it. But I'm like, were you there? You were there. You were there, (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, no, my girlfriend drug me here. Yeah. the gay bar. Exactly. So it was kind of like, you're making fun of me, but you're also like hanging out but like you know where are you exactly (laughs) down at the strip right (laughs) after being ridiculed essentially ronald would intensely deny the accusations that he was gay but his classmates were unfortunately relentless ronald would not find much solace at the bars either as the patrons of the bar would find him to be unsettling and off-putting whenever he was around he's a real dahmer right right he's like don't (laughs) hang out with that guy although dahmer was like apparently he was, like, popular. He was a hot commodity. Yeah. yeah. Ronald would ultimately drop out of college in the mid-1980s. On June 12th, 1985, Ronald would be arrested on charges of sexual harassment committed via telephone and was fined $75 for this charge. What was he, like, calling people a mouth-breathing? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Something. <laughs> so creepy. It's so gross. 
Due to his not having a college degree, Ronald was left to engage in low-skilled labor jobs for the following years, and he would struggle to hold down jobs due to his disciplinary issues. He didn't really have a great time with authority, and he was kind of unwilling to remain in a job for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. He probably called his job all the time mouth-breathing. That's probably where he got the charge from. <laughs> the telephone was a lawless woman back then. As soon as, you know, he gets fired, he, like, starts sexually harassing yeah. people via <laughs> telephone. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was before caller ID. Yeah, that's very true. I had a, a friend of mine, a girlfriend of mine growing up, that she had her own telephone line and she would get a mouth breather. And for the longest time, I didn't believe her until I picked up the phone one day oh and I gosh. heard a dude mouth breathing on the other end. Creepy. Yeah. Like, what is the point? The main line had a caller ID, but her line didn't. Yeah. That's creepy. Like, I guess the point is, like, fear tactic or whatever or like just like being creepy i don't know yeah just being <laughs> you creepy out of that, you yeah <laughs> you're not even saying anything you're just breathing you don't even get a conversation out of this <laughs> so due to not being able to hold down down a job for a long period of time ronald would live with relatives and would survive off of other people's income oh he was a bum yes out of these people he would take advantage of his older sister and his mother the most in May of 1994, Ronald would be arrested for drunk driving and would be fined again for this offense. So it's, I'm not going to say, clearly this is going to build up, right? Yeah. But at the same time, it's kind of like, all right, drunk driving, mouth breathing, you know, these <laughs> Tom peeping, Tom peeping, <laughs> Tom peepering. <laughs> yeah. It's, I wouldn't, I'm not going to say that these are harmless crimes, but. Yeah. It's, it's very like, but it's, it's very much so this story is like. These little things that he's getting in trouble for, and then, like, all of a sudden it goes to murder. Like, that's Ugh. not a secret. This is a <laughs> murder podcast. <laughs> um, but I almost think that, like, he was doing a lot of things that he just didn't get caught for. I see. And I don't know where this even came from. Like, I don't know if he just felt so outcasted his whole life, and that's why he wanted to, like, take revenge, like we've heard before. Yeah. Or if he was dealing with these feelings his whole life and was trying to join up like the glee club and choir and stuff to like get away from that and then yeah. he just succumbed to it i mean this would be in his mid-20s you know it's so true. it makes sense it is kind of mirroring i mean i guess we haven't really talked because we don't know much about the parents yeah what the mother-son dynamic was but you yeah. did say like that he's clearly gonna live with or is living with the sister and the mom or at least taking advantage of them yeah so i'm wondering if that's that's part of that He's, like, seeking that nurture or because he has a connection with his mom or his sister. It yeah. Just, it sounds like Kemper. Yeah, for saying. sure. And yeah. it sounds like he, I mean, he obviously has struggled with his identity in the past. And then when he decided to come out mm -hmm. as being homosexual, he got ridiculed for it. So yeah. he probably has some inner, like, anger, you yeah. know? Two years later, on August 25th, 1996, a partially naked young male would be seen jumping out of a window of Ronald's sister's home, <gasps> where Ronald was living at the time. The boy would run to neighbors, where he told them that Ronald had raped him and attempted to kill him. Jesus. Ronald would subsequently be arrested for this and charged with forcible rape, with his bail being set at $100,000. Hmm. When the case got transferred to the court, the prosecutor's office was unable to locate the victim or even establish his identity. What? Due to this, the case would be dismissed in November of that year. Can't I don't know. Him, can't find the victim, yeah. so just let him go. I don't know if he was threatened or if he just decided maybe it's not worth it. Maybe he wasn't out himself and didn't yeah. want to go through all of that. Not exactly sure. But yeah, the charges would be dropped. But still, you would think, like, there's a claim. At least he's on the radar, is what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, for sure. 
Following this, Ronald would continue to frequent local gay bars without finding any luck with relationships. He would use his love of singing and glee club background to involve himself with music. Ronald would also frequently be seen dressed up as singer Patti LaBelle, of <gasps> whom he was a big fan. I love Patti LaBelle. So he would show up to the bar as a Patti LaBelle impersonator. Yeah. Sweet, dear Miss Patti LaBelle. Love it. <laughs> On July 12th of 1997, 19-year-old David Mitchell was hitchhiking back home after leaving a relative's birthday party at his grandmother's home, where he was picked up by Ronald. Don't know why a relative didn't drive him home. Maybe everyone was busy or too drunk. He's like, fuck it, I'll just hitchhike. I think he's probably just a really big Patti LaBelle fan. What? Oh, <laughs> the guy? Imagine, <laughs> just imagine him in the car dressed as Patti LaBelle. Where he was like, picked up by Patti LaBelle. <laughs> where he... <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, this isn't funny. Sorry. Ronald would take David back to his house with the promise of sexual activity. And here he would bind, torture, rape, and ultimately murder David. Ronald was noted as stating about this later that he knew after his first victim got away that he would be facing jail time if he did not kill his future victims. So, okay, great. So he's like, oh, I let one get away, and now I can't do that. Now I can't do that ever again, so they're all gonna die. Oh my god, that's awful. (sighs) David's body would be found two days later on July 14th, 1997, in a ditch along a highway near a sugarcane field in St. Charles Parish. Forensic research found that there was ditch water in David's lungs, but no trace of physical trauma, drugs, or alcohol. David's death would initially be ruled an accidental drowning, but his father insisted that his son was an excellent swimmer, and he knew that he had been murdered. This was more believable, especially due to the fact that the water level in the ditch was very low, and that David's pants had been found around his ankles when he was discovered. Oh, yeah, but he just, like, drowned. He just, like, took his pants off and then drowned. Like, that doesn't <laughs> make sense. He literally laid down, face down, in yeah. order to drown. Like, he would have to make himself. Exactly. Ugh. That's silly. The Louisiana State Police launched a task force of sheriffs from nine parishes shortly after the death of David. Unfortunately, nothing would come of the investigation. That's a lot of police energy, though. That's interesting. I think this is, like eventually i don't know actually maybe it was because the dad was super insistent like yeah. no like you need to fucking look into this yeah that reminded me of sam her and and uh steve her his dad from the dan wozniak case mm-hmm. how you know they thought that sam had murdered julie and the police were looking for sam as a suspect and steve's like my son didn't do this like you will you will find him yeah but my son did not do this yes yeah. yeah that's gotta be awful to not right. be believed right In December of 1997, 20-year-old Gary Pierre was picked up by Ronald and would become his second victim. Well, murder victim. Gary had recently been arrested for drug trafficking, and his body would be found fully clothed with no signs of physical trauma or drugs in his system. Interesting. Because of this, investigators did not rule his death a homicide immediately. Hmm. The following year, on July 31st, 1998, 38-year-old Larry Ranson would become Ronald's next victim. Larry was known to have been struggling with drug addiction and was living on the streets at the time of his murder. Again, due to these things, there was not a strong investigation following his death. I can't believe I've never heard of this case. Yes, and we'll see, like, it's like, boom, 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 like, victim after victim. Yeah. Like, I've done cases like this before. In early October of 1998, Ronald met 27-year-old Oliver LeBanks in, I think it's called Metri, which is a part of New Orleans. Hmm. 
According to Ronald, Oliver was addicted to drugs, and he offered Ronald sexual services in exchange for money. Ronald stated that he took Oliver up on his offer, and then he strangled him to death following the encounter. Oliver LeBanc's body would be found a few days later on October 4th on the outskirts of New Orleans. During the autopsy of Oliver's body, traces of semen were found on his body. Relatives and friends of Oliver's would later comment about his lifestyle and said that he only began abusing drugs and living on the streets following him losing his most recent job for drug use, which is really sad. That is sad. The same month, October of 1998, 16-year-old Joseph Brown was lured into Ronald's truck in Kenner under the guise of buying crack cocaine. After doing the drugs together, Ronald would beat the teen several times on the head with a blunt object and would proceed to strangle him to death with a plastic bag. It's just awful. Like, so many people already, you know? Yeah. Well, I find it interesting. I mean, I guess we have seen it in cases before, but that he's targeting people that are drug users. Yeah, and on the streets, yeah. Yeah. A month later, 18-year-old Bruce Williams would also become a victim of Ronald's, with similar circumstances being his cause of death. In May of 1999, a 36-year-old Ronald was driving around Kenner when he came across 21-year-old Manuel Reed, who offered to sell Ronald drugs. Ronald stated that he agreed to the offer and allowed Manuel into his truck, where he would ultimately rape and strangle him to death as well. You're saying stated. So I'm assuming there's some type of a confession later. What? That's really weird. I didn't say that. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. What, what's over there? Ronald would dump Manuel's body into an industrial site in the city, about a mile from where Joseph Brown's body was found. It's like he's getting like lazy essentially just, like he's just kind of throwing him thing and we'll see like a lot of his victims are found like days after they're murdered like it's not like they're there for months i see yeah so it's definitely he's he's positioning these bodies in a way that someone would find them i don't know if he's doing it on purpose though yeah yeah like i think he's just like whatever you know kind of like, like convenience yeah it's just like this is as good a spot as any yeah Whether it's your favorite browser or by app, listening to audiobooks with Audiobooks Now makes it easier and more affordable to enjoy your favorite books. Audiobooks Now subscribers receive their club price plan and includes other amazing deals. Click the link in the show notes for an exclusive offer today. Get audiobooks you love for less with Audiobooks Now. Similar to Oliver LeBanks, traces of semen were found on Manuel's body belonging to an unknown male. Just to get everybody up to speed, this is now seven murder victims that have been killed. In the span of how long? A couple of years. A month following this, in June of 1999, 21-year-old Angel Mejia, a transient male with a past conviction for drug possession, became Ronald's next victim. Following killing Angel, Ronald attempted to dump his body in a dumpster, but after discovering that it was full, Ronald would dump Angel's body on the street, just out in the open. Oh my god. So I, th- I think I'm telling you, I think it's just convenience. Like, whatever, I just need to get rid of this body. Yeah. You know? Oh my god. After examining the corpse, the coroner would find that the victim had been tied up with rope prior to his death. So he's escalating. Yeah, but it is definitely seems, like, sloppy. Yeah. It's like, what, what were we talking about? The different types of killers? It's like, mm-hmm. he's the, like, he's the disorganized type. Yeah, right? yeah. And it's just, like, anybody that he sees, or anybody can anybody can be a victim. He's not... Well, I mean, he's specifically targeting young men, of yeah. course, but, like, 
well, if I see one on the street, like, I'm going to try to lure him, you know? Yeah, that's just, but I, I find it interesting that it's been a few years, and I guess, here's the thing, though, we all, we've seen it again before in cases, that there's certain demographics of people that do not get police attention, mm-hmm, for and sure. although they might be slowly linking these crimes together, is it, like, front page news? Probably not. Well, yeah, and of course, and like we said, a lot of these people had known problems with drug use mm-hmm. so it's like who's to say that they didn't just overdose right the the police might be thinking that right or it's a drug deal gone wrong or yeah it's whatever. or if they yeah. don't have like marks you know that are really obvious and they right. might not even be a homicide in their eyes you know yeah the investigation into the killings it's funny you say that it was still ongoing but at this point investigators had discovered that gary pierre Joseph Brown and Angel Mejia had not only all known each other, but had all lived within close proximity to each other. What? They were all friends. Oh my gosh. Well, acquaintances, I guess. Yeah, but it's like hunting grounds for him. Mm -hmm. Like, this is his hunting ground. Exactly. Uh. In late August of 1999, Ronald would meet 34-year-old Mitchell Johnson and offered him drugs in exchange for sexual favors. He would then take Mitchell to the forest outside Metchery, where he bound him, raped, and strangled him to death. Mitchell's fully nude body would be found on September 1st. In January of the year 2000, Ronald would meet 23-year-old Michael Vincent in Lafourche Parish and subsequently lead him to the same fate as his other victims. That was like last year. 2000? Yeah, it was. (laughs) In early October of 2000, 20-year-old Kenneth Randolph Jr., a three-time prosecuted child sex offender, would meet Ronald and the two would become friends. Oh, yeah. Douche meets douche. Okay. (laughs) Douche meets douche. (laughs) Kenneth lived in the trailer park next to Ronald, and since the two were acquainted, Kenneth thought nothing of it when Ronald invited him back to his trailer. Ronald would also include the lie that a girl was waiting at his trailer for Kenneth and that she was interested in sex. Ew. This guy was not homosexual. Once the two were alone, Ronald would attack and murder Kenneth, taking his body to a field outside the city and dumping him. Kenneth's remains would be found a few days later on October 6th. But isn't that kind of gross that he was like, oh, there's a little girl waiting for you to have sex ugh. with her over my trailer. Ugh. Like, ugh. I could say something really fucked up right now. <laughs> Don't. The year of 2001 was kind of a lull for Ronald, as there was no record of any murders that actually took place during this year. Which I thought was interesting. Because if he really did take a hiatus, like a year-long hiatus, that's difficult to do when you're a serial killer. Yeah, and I'm, I, we, and again, you know, I, I keep calling back to other cases, but it's true, like, when you have a job change or a location change or a lifestyle change, that sometimes there is a lull. Yeah, for sure. On February 10th, 2002, Ronald would be arrested yet again, this time for assaulting a woman in Terrebonne Parish during a Mardi Gras festival. Ronald had claimed that he witnessed this woman hit a baby stroller with her car in one of the parking lots, and he tracked her down to demand an apology. Okay, so that's what I was going to say. <laughs> I'm sure everybody's curious. It's the, the horrible thing I was going to say, but I was like, look, <laughs> I'm curious. Vigilante, right? He's, <laughs> he took out the sexual child predator, and now he's, now he's a hero for saving a baby in a stroller. The woman would apologize to him, and Ronald would respond by punching her in the face. <laughs> It's not funny. I am Batman. <laughs> Just punches her in the face. Jesus. That's a terrible. Ugh. Ronald would be charged with assaults, but these charges would also later be dropped after an agreement of reconciliation was reached between him and the woman. Yeah, I'm sure she was like, pay for my medical bills. Sure. 
During this time, no one was the wiser that the man who had been arrested was responsible for the deaths of at least 11 people. Jesus. On October 12, 2002, 26-year-old Anoka Jones would meet Ronald while he was living on the streets in Halma. Anoka? That's an interesting name. It is. Anoka was noted as being financially strained uh, and a petty criminal, so he was pretty willing to do anything for money. Mm. Ronald would lure him to his car, where he attacked, tied up, raped, and strangled Anoka to death. Ronald would dump Anoka's body under a highway overpass, where it would be discovered several hours later. That's what I'm saying. Like, he just doesn't care. He's getting ballsy as fuck. He's just like, whatever. Nobody's gonna catch me. Nobody right? cares about these people. Well, they're he's probably awful. like, nobody cares about me. Yeah. You know? He's like, I'm not important. Fuck it. I, I mean, that's what he was taught his whole life, that he was insignificant, right? Mm-hmm. In late 2002, Ronald's sister would move, and Ronald would, of course, follow with her, having nowhere else to go. Bum. They would both move to the rural community of Bayou Blue. Here, Ronald would find a job as a specialist who checked electricity levels at a local power supply, allowing him to periodically travel. Around this time, 19-year-old Dottrell Woods would become the next victim of Ronald's. His partially nude body and bicycle would be dumped in a field, where it would remain undiscovered until May 24th of 2003. Dutrell's cause of death would be determined to be asphyxiation from accidental causes. Dutrell was known to have suffered from asthma, so police would rule his death as an accident. I see. I was going to ask. Like, like, how? How? <laughs> accidentally get choked to death? Yeah. No, but that's really, like, awful because... Um, he has asthma, and they're like, it's, it's almost like they're, like, finding something else. Was was any other reason they could have died besides being besides murdered? They were in drug murder. addiction, they were homeless, you know, the elements, right? This yeah. asthma, it's just, there's not a lot of effort getting put into this, like, Emmy report or, like, the investigation. Right, yeah. 2003 was another lull year for Ronald, as there are no recorded murders during this year as well. Hmm. However, it is unknown if Dutrell was killed at the end of 2002 or the beginning of 2003. Regardless, the rest of the year, 2003, was... There's nothing on record. Yeah. In October of 2004, Ronald would lure 46-year-old Larry Matthews to his home with the promise of drugs. And this is interesting, too, because this is his oldest victim. Usually he... I mean, he has, I think, anywhere from, like, 16 to 46 is his, like, range, maybe. Yeah. Maybe a little bit here, give or take. But typically, we've seen, like, 19, 20, 21, 22. Early 20s, yeah. yeah, exactly. While the two were engaging in drug use, according to Ronald, Larry would lose consciousness due to an overdose, and Ronald would take advantage of this by raping and strangling the man. <laughs> Ronald would dump La- Larry's body 20 miles from the crime scene. Like I said, like... I'm it's not like laughing because it's funny. Just... I'm 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 cafawing at the ridiculousness. Yeah. Like it's like, oh no, I didn't I didn't make him pass out. He did that. He was overdosing. Exactly. But I did rape him. Like, right. What? But it's like it, it's like even if he was just trying to ha- do drugs with this guy, as soon as the opportunity arises or like presents itself, yeah. he's like, well, might as well just rape and kill him. You know, like <laughs> he's a sloppy opportunist. He really is. Since Larry was living on the streets at the time of his murder, nobody initially reported him as missing. That was another thing I was gonna say. Is that these people probably don't have a lot of advocates either. Exactly. So the police can say whatever they want on a medical or, you know, on uh, the cause of death. Not the police, but they would accept the medical examiner's professional opinion, I'm assuming. Because they're like, there's no family looking for him anyway. Exactly. Unlike Homeboy that had their dad be their advocate, right? Yeah. Once Larry's body was discovered, it had to be identified via fingerprints. I think it's because it was just decomposed. Mm Mm-hmm. 
21-year-old Michael Barnett's body would be found on October 24, 2004, and it would later be discovered that he was also a victim of Ronald Dominic. In February of 2005, Ronald would murder 22-year-old Leon Lorette. According to sources, Leon struggled with alcohol abuse and was also an old roommate of two of Ronald's previous victims. This guy. Michael Barnett and Anoka Jones. Hmm. Leon was actually the prime suspect in the murder of his two old roommates. That is, until he became a victim himself. What the fuck? Do you think he, like, takes their identifications and stuff and then... I don't know. Like, this sounds cruel, but, like, picks them off one by one? I mean, it's like... <laughs> so funny. Sorry. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't... I mean, it's likely that if one struggles with drugs, then maybe someone else in the house might. Yeah. And that's just kind of the... Per- Again, opportunist. He's an yeah, opportunist. Yeah, no, it's definitely an opportunist. And he's like, oh, three young guys that all live together? Well, yeah. kill all three of them. Now I, have, now I know where they live, you know? Right. <sighs> it's freaky. Two months later, Ronald would meet 31-year-old August Watkins, another man who was living on the streets. He would lure August to his truck with the promise of letting him stay at his home overnight. After the two returned to Ronald's home... August would be offered alcohol and was told that there was a girl wanting to have sex with him. Ronald would tie up, rape, and strangle August to death following him agreeing to the sex with the girl. It was not until August's body was discovered that the police began to put the pieces together that there may be a serial killer on the loose. Oh! Weird. After 17 murders Mm -mm. that had occurred in both Kenner and Halma were strikingly similar... And at this point, the case was handed over to the FBI because it was already so big. Well, because they can't, they can't be bothered to do anything else. They're like, yeah. we connected the dots, but let's just go ahead and paper push this to the FBI. Right. You won't be able to handle this. I think that actually the FBI, like, takes point after a certain number of people have been killed. Yeah. They, like, take it from <clears throat> them. Yeah. Yeah. So the task force was made up of those original nine South Louisiana parish sheriffs the Louisiana State Police and, of course, the FBI. So even so though, like, the case is, agencies. like, being the running point, yeah, they're, they're all really trying to help. Mm-hmm. Ronald was clueless that he was being hunted, or if he knew, he just did not care. A few days after killing August Watkins, Ronald would meet and kill 23-year-old Kurt Cunningham. Later that same summer, Ronald would also murder 28-year-old Alonzo Hogan in St. Charles Parish, and 17-year-old Wayne Smith in Terrebonne Parish. He would lure both of these men by telling him that one of his female friends was wanting to have sex with them. Oh, it's worked so well. Right. Unlike most of his past victims, Alonzo and Wayne did not have past criminal records and weren't known to use drugs. It was also noted that Alonzo Hogan had been sexually assaulted, while it looked like Wayne Smith had not, Hmm. which was interesting. In September of 2005, 40-year-old Chris Neville was trying to hitchhike out of Napoleonville following Hurricane Katrina when he was picked up by Ronald. Which is even more fucked up. It's like, you just lost everything in this hurricane. Now you're trying to get out of the fucking city so you don't drown. Yeah. And this asshole picks you up. Well, and diseases run rampant, too, because there's just no control. There's no, like, it's, it's, it becomes, like, all the, all the stagnant water and stuff. Yeah. It's really easy for bacteria to be spread around. And so it's just dangerous when, when natural disasters happen like that yeah ronald would murder chris similar to his other victims and dump his body in a field chris's skeletal remains would be discovered the following month and id'd by his relatives 
There's a lot of victims, <laughs> I'm telling you. It's a lot. In late November, 21-year-old Nicholas Pellegrin had been under concern from his family when they had found out that he borrowed $400 from a local drug dealer and was unable to pay them back. Oh, shit. He would begin to receive death threats, and around this same time, Nicholas would meet Ronald. Ronald would ultimately murder Nicholas, but when his body was discovered, police thought that it must be drug-related since he owed those guys money. In the summer of 2006, Ronald would meet a 27-year-old by the name of Christopher Sutterfield, and the two would begin casually dating. He's finally got a boyfriend, right? Okay. They would remain a couple for a few months until October 14th. While on a date together, Ronald would hit Christopher over the head with a heavy object, causing him to lose consciousness. Ronald would ultimately kill Christopher. What the fuck? It's like, that's your boyfriend. Like, your... it's one thing if it's, like, strangers. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it is. Like, and yeah. now it's, like, it's, there's no the escalation. Yeah. yeah. And now it's, like, what did this fucking guy do? Yeah. You well, just didn't was... want to be with him anymore? I was thinking about that a second ago when you were talking about the previous victim, the one that they thought was drug-related because mm-hmm. he had money, that it's interesting that even the FBI wouldn't consider this to be more personal because it's usually asphyxiation Mm -hmm. or a blunt force trauma, something that's pretty personal. It's not a drive-by. It's not gun-related. It's not even a stabbing. Yeah. You know, there's like an instrument that's being used that separates you from the individual. And so that's why it's interesting that they would rule a lot of these as like drug-related yeah. or something like that. It's true, because especially if they have, like, any markings of being, like, physically assaulted, like, prior to death, like, that might not just be... A, if it was, like, a drug deal gone wrong, like, you'd probably get shot, you know, yeah. or stabbed or something, you not know? Not tortured. Or strangled, and you know? sexually assaulted. Yeah. I mean, you know... After finding Christopher's body, police would interview his relatives, friends, and acquaintances all of whom confirmed that they had last seen him with a man driving a black SUV. Oh, here we go, but yeah. they were unable to identify who it was or even describe his appearance. Hmm. Police still had no leads in the case, besides maybe a dark-colored SUV, but they were unsure if this was even the same person who was responsible for the murder of now 23 men. But at the same time, it could at least be a witness. Yes. Potentially. In November of 2006... Ronald would invite Ricky Wallace, a resident of Bayou Blue, to his home with the promise of drugs and sex with a woman. After Ricky entered the trailer, Ronald tried to convince him that the girl was really into bondage, and he offered to tie Ricky up prior to the girl coming in. Yeah, just helping a bro out. Ricky would refuse, and soon after, Ronald allowed him to leave the home. Ricky would go to police about this experience, and initially he was simply not believed. Ricky did have a reputation of being addicted to drugs and lying about big things in the past. Mm. However, regardless of this, police decided to question Ronald. Good. Ronald would go down to the police station where he agreed to give a blood sample. Yep, take it. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'm insignificant. Yeah. Over the next week, police would discover that the DNA from Ronald matched the semen samples taken from Oliver LeBanks and Manuel Reed, and an arrest warrant was immediately put out. Dummy. On December 1st, 2006, Ronald would be arrested at a homeless shelter. After being arrested and questioned, Ronald stated to police that he was at the homeless shelter because he knew that it was a matter of time before he was captured, since he had provided DNA samples, so he moved out of his sister's house in order to not inconvenience her. What? What What a a nice guy. guy. (laughs) He's so nice. 
Once at the police station, Ronald expressed his desire to cooperate with investigators and immediately confessed to 23 murders with details not released to the public. What the fuck? Just, he was just like, oh, whatever. He was just waiting to get caught. Yeah. And I think that's why he was so careless. And then, like, honestly, with, like, the police investigation, he kept seeing, like, well, I can keep doing this and I'm going to keep doing this until I get caught. Until I get caught. I'll, I yeah. can put this guy in the middle of the street and they're still not going to know it's me. Ugh. <sighs> Of course, charges would immediately be placed against Ronald, who kept his stance on the fact that although he confessed, he was not guilty. What? He would state that most of the victims had voluntarily gone with him and agreed to be tied up since they wanted to earn money. What the fuck? He would state that anyone who didn't want to be tied up would be released. Which is not true because that only there's only evidence of that one guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, the last guy. I'm sorry, but... If you tie anyone up against their will, they're not going to want to be tied up against their will. I'm sorry. When it came to his motive, Ronald stated that he was not interested in going to prison, so he obviously had to dispose of the men that became witnesses to his crimes, or victims, like his sexual assault crimes. He wasn't interested in going to prison, but yet he dumped every single body in plain sight. Yeah. For the most part. According to him, after Ronald was arrested in 96 for rape, he was strongly impacted and remained in a constant negative emotional state, even beginning to show signs of a mental disorder. According to him? Yes. There were never any mental disorders that were diagnosed for him, but I don't know. Dissociativeness, I think, is a really big deal here. Yeah, for sure. Ronald would accept a plea bargain from prosecutors on September 24th, 2008, and the court would find him guilty on all charges. I think also maybe a paraphilic... Yeah, definitely. He would subsequently be sentenced to eight life terms without parole, avoiding the death penalty by pleading guilty. Hmm. And he is currently incarcerated at the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola. How have I never heard of this case? I don't know. That's the whole case. It's kind of a short one, but that was the whole case. I mean, it was really, like, no early life, all victims, and, like, no aftermath, you know? That's all I could find. But, yeah, I had never heard of it either. I guess I came across it, like I said, on, like... A Reddit post or, or TikTok. TikTok or something, yeah. you know? And yeah. I've never heard... And they called him the Bayou Strangler? Yes. What? I know. Like, that's interesting. Because it was... I mean, it was when we were not that young, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's the story of Ronald Dominic. And I mean, like I said, it's pretty cut and dry. Like, I don't know... Here's the thing. Like, a lot of the things that I think led him up to this were just not available yeah. to the public. Like... There had to have been a lot more that went into him developing the way that he yeah. did. I don't think that just being ridiculed for being gay is enough to make someone do this. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it's comorbid with a bunch of other things, obviously, yeah. that like maybe paired. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's just really cut and dry case. A lot yeah. of victims. At times, like I said, it kind of reminded me of Edmund Kemper, mm-hmm. that there had to have been some type of a an attachment issue with either parent clearly he was close with his mom and his sister enough to want to live with them Mm -hmm. but it could also be a cover i think that i think that he did deal with probably issues feeling like inadequate and nobody's going to love me for the way that I am, so I have to force this yeah, sexual interaction. like a Dahmer mindset. Like a Dahmer mindset, yeah. But also, like, all of these men were killed in his sister's home. Yeah. So there's obviously something dissociative going on there. Like, mm-hmm. it's not like a Dahmer thing where he lives by himself in an apartment. 
I mean, yeah, it's terrible nonetheless, but... He lived with he his grandmother, other though. people... That's true. He has other people in the home, mm-hmm. and he's still doing... Like, that tells me that he's not attached to reality. Like, yeah. dumping the body, not really even thinking about getting caught, you know, doing it in the company of other people, maybe, that could potentially hear. Who knows? But... Or the fact that the victims were linked to each other, too. Yeah, they were all roommates and stuff. Like, he cleared out an entire house of people that all lived together at one point. Like, that's awful. It's really, really ballsy. And again, I think that that ballsiness is not necessarily... I said he was narcissistic earlier. I don't even know if it's narcissistic. I think it's just detached. Yeah. Really, is what it it comes down to. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, that's all I have. That was a wild case. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. You will get another patreon bonus case sometime this week and be looking out for that if you are not already a patreon member you can go to patreon.com slash diagnosing a killer tiers all three tiers get ad free content every week tiers two and three will get that additional episode and that's no content warning nothing just straight to the point no Mm -hmm. banter nothing like that y'all have a happy leap day and we will see you in March. Oh, yes. Okay. We will talk <laughs> to you later. All right. Love, love you. you. Bye. Loving a pet is easy. Losing a pet is hard. Perfect Memorials has been chosen by families since 2001 for their unique memorial products. Choosing a cremation urn or other product from Perfect Memorials allows many special ways to memorialize your loved one. Keep your furry friend in your memory forever with unique, handcrafted, and personalized products for everyone. Click the link in our show notes for an exclusive offer with Perfect Memorials today.